Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. This podcast is presented by the Griffith Asia Institute and the Australian Institute of International Affairs Queensland branch. Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew O'Neill. I'm director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Thank you all for coming this evening to uh, what I think is going to be a very exciting and stimulating event. Uh, this is. Uh, this is, I'm told uh, by Jeff, the uh, second uh, dual event between the AIIA and, and the GAI. And I, I for one, uh, and I know Jeff shares my sentiments, certainly hope that this is the first, uh, sorry, the second, I should say, of many uh, into the future. Tonight we have Mr. Darrell Copeland, who's an analyst, writer, and educator in international policy, global issues, diplomacy, and, and public management. Now, I'll just tell you, uh, give you a little bit of background about Darrell before, before I um, formally. Uh, introduce him. From 1981 through to 2009, Darrell worked as a Canadian diplomat with postings in Thailand, Ethiopia, New Zealand and Malaysia. During the 80s and 90s, he was elected five times to the Executive Committee of the Professional Association of Foreign Service Officers. From 96 to 99, Darrell was National Program Director of the Canadian Institute of International Affairs in Toronto and editor of Behind the Headlines. Uh, which was then uh, Canada's International Affairs magazine. In 2000, uh, he received the Canadian Foreign Service Officer Award for his, quote, tireless dedication and unyielding commitment to advancing the interests of the diplomatic profession. Uh, among Darrell's positions at the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade in Ottawa, he's worked as uh, Deputy Director for International Communications, Director for Southeast Asia, Senior Advisor of Public Diplomacy, Director of Strategic Communications Services, and Senior Advisor of Strategic Policy and Planning. Uh, and of course, Darrell is uh, the author of, is it fair to say, a controversial book? Stim provocative text, uh, Guerrilla Diplomacy Rethinking International Relations, which was released in July 2009, published by Lynn Reiner Publishers. And so, without any further ado, Darrell, please welcome and thank you. Uh, hi, everybody. Listen, I'm absolutely delighted to uh, be with you in Brisbane, and uh, thanks to Griffiths and the AIIA for inviting me and helping to make this possible. Now, time is one of those resources uh, that actually is the scarcest and the only non-renewable one that we have. When you run out of it, it doesn't matter what kind of access to other resources you have. It doesn't matter anymore. And so we don't have much of it tonight. And I'm hoping to make the most of <laughs> what little of it we have uh, by getting engaged with you in a dialogue about some of the ideas that I want to present. Um, so I won't be droning on for too long. So I live in rural Quebec. It's about half an hour outside of Ottawa. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw the slide of the lake with a bit of frost on the two floating platforms. Um, that's what it looks like in around October when the weather starts to change. But in the middle of winter, it's minus 30. There's three feet of snow. Uh, and January 2007, I was doing the research for the book and listening to some uh, classical music on CBC Radio 2. And the beautiful strains of Scheherazade came on. And I recognized the music, but I, and I had a rough idea of the story. But I thought, I'll Google Scheherazade and see what comes up. So I did, and the more I looked into the Shahrazad tale, the more I was convinced that 
you know, she was speaking to me across the ages and trying to tell me something about guerrilla diplomacy. So, in fact, she was the daughter of the vizier to the Sultan of Persia back in the mists of time. And the Sultan had been betrayed by his first wife, and so he had adopted really a very radical new policy, which was that each night from among his many subjects, he would select a beautiful young virgin, spend the night with her, and in the morning send her off to the executioner. This went on and on and on and on, and Scheherazade grew increasingly restive. And she noticed in particular that her father, who probably should have been giving the Sultan some advice like, don't do this, it's killing all my friends, it's ruining gender balance in the kingdom, it's having a terrible effect on our image and reputation, but the vizier didn't step up to the plate, so Scheherazade did. And she, by the way, had many of the qualities of my guerrilla diplomat. She was clever. She was courageous. She was not risk-averse. She had a lot of imagination and creativity. She innovated. So she said, Dad, I'm going to volunteer to spend a night with the Sultan. Dad said, don't do that, Shahrazad, because you know what's going to happen. And she said, well, I know what's been happening, and you're not doing anything about it, so I'm going to. She goes to the palace. King's very surprised to see her. He said, well, you know, Shahrazad, what's going to happen? She said, it's okay. I know I volunteer. He said, great. Well, let's go upstairs. And she said, well, okay, but actually it's pretty early. How about a story? And he said, well, okay, I like stories. Yeah, tell me a story. And so it might have been... Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, it might have been Sinbad the Sailor, uh, it could have been Aladdin's Magic Lamp, who knows. In any case, she was a great storyteller. And it went on and on and on and on and on until zero hour, and she said, so, Sultan, uh, would you like to hear the punchline? And he said, well, of course, you've you know, kept me up all night. What's the punchline? And she said, well, I'm not going to tell you unless you invite me back tomorrow night. He was worried about the sorts of things that all sultans or kings are worried about. Precedent. Was it going to undermine his authority with his subjects? All sorts of other kingly thoughts. But at the end, he found the narrative so powerful that he said, well, okay, Shahrazad, come back. So she went home and her father, the vizier, was very surprised to see her. And he was even more surprised when she said that she was going to be going back the next night, which she did. Told the king the punchline. The king said, great, that was a great story. She hears that now. Let's go upstairs. And she, she said, well, yeah, okay, but look, if you like that story, I've got another one. And as you can imagine, this did go over and over again and again for a thousand nights. And finally, on the thousand and first night, he said, you know, Shahirzad, we've got a very good thing going here. <laughs> Why don't we get married? So they did, and they had three children, and they lived happily ever after. So I'm thinking about this story, and I'm thinking there's three lessons, there's three messages here about diplomacy that I think are really worth emphasizing. The first is use your head or whatever other comparative advantage you can bring to the negotiating table, the bedroom, or anywhere that you happen to be operating. Use your head. Second, talk, don't fight. 
And third, talk and talk and talk and talk and keep talking until they send the executioner home. And that, I submit to you, is the enduring message that diplomacy should be bringing to the world of international relations. The problem, however, is that diplomacy has been marginalized and sidelined and serially under-resourced, and as a result, it is quite unable to perform as I've just advertised. Why is that? It's got an image problem, and it's got a substance problem. Its image problem is that it's never really recovered from that iconic photograph of Chamberlain in Munich announcing as he's standing there in his top hat and tails with von Ribbentrop that he had negotiated peace in our time. Since then, it has come to be associated with weakness, with appeasement, and with caving in to power. That very negative stereotype was reinforced in my mind uh, in London this fall. I've been doing a lot of book touring. I was over in the UK and Europe for much of the fall. And so I was focused testing London cabbies. London cabbies are a great source of received wisdom on anything, and they've always got views on everything. So every time I'd get in a taxi, I'd say, what's your impression of diplomats and diplomacy? And they'd always give me an answer of copious notes. I can't give it to you in the wonderful Cockney accent, but I can give you a summary in my own words of the way that London cabbies characterize diplomats. Dithering dandies hopelessly lost in a haze of irrelevance somewhere between protocol and alcohol. Pretty much the contemporary take on diplomats and diplomacy. So that's the image problem that diplomacy is dealing with. And it's a tough one. But worse than that is the substance problem. And the substance problem is that diplomacy has not adapted well to the challenges of the globalization age. It's pretty much structured, much as it was in the 20th, if not the 19th century. Foreign ministries are rigid, hierarchic, authoritarian, conservative, change-resistant. And diplomats look more like international policy bureaucrats than the kind of people that are really ready, willing, and able to use negotiation, compromise, and dialogue to resolve real-world problems which is really what diplomacy is all about. So in the book, this is what I argue. Give it to you in one line, and then we'll drill down into each of the six big ideas that are in my one-liner. The core argument of the book is, and it's, it's framed conditionally, so you don't really have to buy it if you don't want to, but I'm going to do my best to persuade you that it's really worth thinking about. And it goes like this. If development 
is a large part of the new security in the age of globalization, then diplomacy must replace defense at the center of international policy. That's my argument. If development is in large part the new security in the age of globalization, then diplomacy must replace defense at the center of international policy. So let's look at each of those big chunks of the argument in turn. When I talk about development, I'm not talking about emergency humanitarian assistance such as we saw with Fiji 10 days ago or Haiti two months ago. I'm not particularly talking about project aid like AusAid does or CETA where I come from in Canada. I'm talking about long-term, equitable, sustainable, human-centered development. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a condition in which the human person is able to achieve something approaching their full potential. Obstacles and constraints are minimized. What that means is that development isn't just something that we would associate with something we used to call the third world. Development is a much larger construction. So if development is the new security, well, I think that security is in fact the flip side of development. If people's basic needs are met, if they find themselves in a situation where fear and want are absent, then they're going to be much less likely to slap on a vest full of C4 like a couple of those black widows did in the Moscow subway yesterday and blow themselves and a lot of other people up. So my sense of what security is all about at the end of the day is very much the human security vision. So I see development and security as two sides of the same coin. The problem is out there in the world we don't see a lot of development, a lot of security. What we see is a lot of underdevelopment and a lot of insecurity. When underdevelopment and insecurity rub up against each other, sparks tend to fly and into those roiling interstices between underdevelopment and insecurity, governments lately have been ramming the military. And what I say is, let's hold off on sending in the Marines or the SAS or whoever and let's think instead about sending in a couple of busloads of guerrilla diplomats, about whom more in a minute. So if development is in large part the new security in this age of globalization, well, what, what can we say about globalization? Well, we, we could talk for an awfully long time about globalization. Let's just say a few things about globalization. I think it's the successor historical era to the Cold War. I think it's a historical and historical process which pretty much frames and envelops everything that we do. I think it tends to compress space and accelerate time. I think that it is fueled by science and technology. I think it is carried abroad by commerce. That's what I think about globalization. I think as well that if we really take the meaning of globalization on board, then we better junk our old sense of first, second, third world, which is very pre-globalization, and talk instead about a world view. 
W-H-I-R-L-E-D view, because the thing about globalization is it mixes everything up. I'm from Toronto. It's a city of about four and a half million people. I was teaching there this fall, University of Toronto. And as I walked from where I was staying in an apartment downtown to the University of Toronto campus, I had to navigate around people sleeping on hot air vents, wander through lines of the homeless who were waiting for various types of social assistance. It was very much what we used to associate with the third world, and it was right in the heart of my hometown. Conversely, when I'm in some of the better neighborhoods of Sao Paulo or Shanghai, I see riches the likes of which I don't come across very much in my hometown of Toronto. The erstwhile first world is there in what we used to call the third. So globalization has world, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, up our worldview. And in the book, um, I propose an alternative world order model, which I think is a lot more apt at explaining the way things are than the old first, second, third world model. So globalization uh, is incredibly complex. It's this historical process. It tends towards polarization. It creates winners and losers. It has a tendency to socialize the costs and privatize the benefits, which exacerbates this winners and losers pattern. It's a very different operating environment for diplomacy. So if development is in large part the new security in this age of globalization, then diplomacy must replace defense at the center of international policy. So diplomacy. You've got the cartoon caricature of the diplomat in pinstripes or pearls. Diplomacy, in fact, is an approach to the management of international relations, which is nonviolent and features political communication. That's how it operates. And when it's working properly, the centerpiece in diplomacy is dialogue. Dialogue is not what we're doing right now. This is monologue. Diplomacy, when it's working, is on receive as much as it is on transmit. That means listening skills are extremely important. The reason that diplomacy is, in my view, our best tool to deal with the challenges and threats in the globalization age is that when it's working properly, information is being transmitted back into the policy development feedback loops at both ends of the conversation. What does that mean? That means that diplomacy, when it's working properly based on dialogue or meaningful exchange, can actually alter behavior at both ends of the conversation. That's why diplomacy can be effective in resolving real differences, often intractable differences, because it's not just about being on message and being on send. It's about effective communication, meaningful exchange, genuine dialogue. So diplomacy, that kind of diplomacy, must replace defense. What do I mean by defense? Well, defense used to be 
in the Cold War considered pretty much coterminous with security. Security and defense, they were used almost interchangeably. I think in the globalization age, security has very little to do with generals and admirals and bombs and guns. And I think the problem with defense or the military as an establishment is that it is both too sharp and too dull an instrument to address the sorts of challenges that we find coming out of this globalization age. I think the enduring lesson of the Cold War we've forgotten. What was that? It was, and it's a bit ironic, militaries tend to work best when you don't use them. That's what deterrence and containment were all about. Put another way, the sword stays sharpest when you leave it in the scabbard. You take it out, it makes a terrible mess. I think Iraq and Afghanistan are pretty convincing arguments to that end. And I'm not a pacifist, and I think that militaries have a place, but I think we really have to remember what they're for. They're hard power instruments. They were designed with one purpose in mind. That purpose was to compel our adversaries to submit to our will. First principles, they're there to capture and kill enemies. It's not that they can't do other things, they can do lots of other things. It's just that that's not what they were designed to do. The problem, which I'll get into a bit later, is that the resource allocation between defense and other international policy instruments has, have become so skewed that militaries have started to attract all sorts of taskings that they weren't designed for. So what do they do now? They do disaster relief. They do strategic communication. They do post-conflict reconstruction. They do cross-cultural contact. They do all sorts of things that they were never designed to do. And as a result, A, they don't do them very well, and B, the people that should be doing these things often get left at home because they don't have the wherewithal to deliver anymore, and that's a big problem in my view. So, diplomacy, reconstructed from the ground up, must replace defense because it's the wrong instrument, because you can't call in an airstrike on climate change, you can't garrison against pandemic disease, and you certainly can't send in the Marines to occupy the alternatives to the carbon economy. It's the wrong instrument to deal with the problems of globalization. So diplomacy must replace defense at the center of international policy. International policy, not foreign policy. Foreign policy, very 20th century, it's what foreign ministries do when envoys talk to each other about the business of government. And there will always be some of that to be done, but it's less and less in the globalization age. And so international policy is a much larger construction. Other government departments are part of it. Other levels of government are part of it. Non-governmental organizations are part of it. Business is part of it. Universities are part of it. And individuals are part of it. Bill Gates is an international policy actor. His foundation is spending more on HIV research this year than all governments combined. Bono, whether you like him or not, international policy actor. Bob Geldof, USA for Africa, etc., international policy actor. Lots of them, so it's individuals as well. 
So that's international policy. International policy recognizes that in the 21st century, the state, its relative position in the scheme of things, is diminishing. Power is moving upwards to supranational institutions, outwards to other government departments, other players, and downwards <coughs> to states, provinces, cities, individuals. And so the state's role is becoming smaller, and that's why people in foreign ministries are having a really tough time coping with it. So that's a bit about international policy. So the front end of the book is about that kind of argumentation. It looks at the Cold War and the sorts of issues that foreign ministries had to deal with during the Cold War, alliance politics, geopolitical rivalry, ideological competition, treaty and legal affairs, territorial disputes. All of that stuff is still out there, but it's a lot smaller. What are the real issues that foreign ministries have to deal with in the globalization age? Well, they're, they're fundamentally different in kind. What do they have in common? They tend to be rooted in science and driven by technology. I mentioned a few of them, climate change, pandemic disease, finding alternatives to the carbon economy, but there's many more. Biodiversity, species extinction, genomics, weapons of mass destruction, resource scarcity, food insecurity, any one of these issues, and each one of which is rooted in some very heavy science and driven by some extremely complex technology. Any one of them could take down the planet. Foreign ministries are not organized to manage those issues, which is part of the problem. So that's where we get into part two of the book, which is the prescriptive part. And that's where we look at foreign ministries, foreign services, and the diplomatic business model, how we do diplomacy. So if we look at the title, The Guerrilla Diplomacy, the guerrilla part is about the style, the method, the technique, featuring relentless innovation, knowledge-based problem solving, outside the box thinking, great deal of improvisation. It's smarter, faster, and lighter than traditional diplomacy, or even public diplomacy about more So that's the guerrilla part. And the diplomacy part is that approach to the management of international relations, which is nonviolent and centers upon dialogue, negotiation, and compromise, political communication done internationally. So then, what about this guerrilla diplomacy stuff? Well, My idea of the guerrilla diplomat is someone who can swim with comfort and ease in the sea of the people, to paraphrase Mao and pick up on a bit of that guerrilla imagery, rather than flop around like a fish out of water when they're outside the chancery. And that's all too many serving diplomats who spend most of their time in the bubble. 
They're in the bubble. I've spent a lot of time in the bubble. So the bubble is when you're in your chancery and it's like a miniature replica of headquarters. There's bosses, there's levels, there's standard operating procedures, there's air conditioning and windows, there's other people that look like you and talk like you, and you spend most of your time talking with them or other people that are a lot like them who happen to be visiting from other places that are also in the bubble with a different flag, and you talk a lot about what might be going on out there rather than going out and finding out for yourself. And when you're not in that bubble, you can go down and get in the bubble of an official embassy car and you can bubble your way over to somebody else's bubble. Could be under chancery, could be an international organization. And you'll have another set piece exchange about what might be going on. You'll go back and write a report which nobody will read. And then you'll maybe that evening go to a representational event where there's an also a lot of people like you. And that's what being in the bubble is like, and that's one of the reasons that diplomacy is not working anymore. So our much more grassroots, ground-level, guerrilla diplomacy approach, if you want an image besides the being able to swim like a fish in the sea of the people rather than flopping around like a fish out of water when you're outside the embassy gates, give you a few images. One is, think of the guerrilla diplomat as someone who has many of the same skills and abilities that one might develop as a backpacking world traveler. What are some of those skills? Cross-cultural communications. Language skills. Self-sufficiency. Self-reliance. Resiliency. Survival skills. Life skills the ability to operate out there in the world without a lot of support, economic support, administrative support, bureaucratic support. Very ground level, very grassroots. If you've got a problem, you've got to solve it yourself or you're not going to make it. A street smart policy entrepreneur, part analyst, part activist, part alchemist. There's a lot of alchemy in the kind of diplomacy that I'm talking about. So the guerrilla diplomat then has three qualities, I call them the AAA qualities of acuity, agility, and autonomy, none of which are at the moment adequately represented in the way we do diplomacy. The acuity is the sharpness, the rapid adaptive cognition, the getting it. For example, the understanding the difference between policy and intelligence. Intelligence is information which is relevant, accurate, and timely. That's what makes it of interest to governments as long as it's in some way connected to their values, policies, interests, and objectives. That's what intelligence is. So intelligence is the way the world is. Policy, on the other hand, is the way governments want the world to be. Policy is different than intelligence. The guerrilla diplomat understands this distinction between policy and intelligence and knows that diplomacy is all about delivering policy internationally. 
So if I think of myself, for example, primarily as a plumber, a plumber. The problem is that at the moment the plumbing is broken badly. So if you get an activist foreign minister, we used to have them in Canada, uh, who actually wants to do some things in the world. So they want to reach down, they want to turn on that faucet, they want to see the international policy results just come gushing out, which is what I'd like to see. I'm afraid they're going to reach down and the faucet's going to break off in their hands or they'll finally manage to turn it and what's going to come out? Scale and crap and crud and a couple of drops, but certainly not the gushing international policy results that I think diplomats should be delivering to government. So the reason I think of myself as a plumber is it's really up to the elected politicians to decide what to put in the pipes. That's their job. That's the policy content. But the plumbing, the plumbing is the job of public administrators. And if it's international, then it's the job of the diplomats. And my concern is at the moment that the plumbing is broken. So I want to fix that plumbing by rethinking the business model. <coughs> the business model is the way that we do the diplomacy. We talked a little bit about traditional diplomacy. Envoys talking to other envoys about the business of governments. That's fine. There will always be lots of that business to do, and it works. It's just that there's less and less of that kind of business to do. Then there's public diplomacy. A lot of people think public diplomacy is the new diplomacy. Public diplomacy involves representatives of governments connecting directly with populations through the power of attraction or what very famous Harvard professor Joe Nye calls soft power. Public diplomacy, if you're a Canada or Australia, public diplomacy, in my view, is a no-brainer. It's just slam dunk. It's what we should be doing because we've got a reasonably good image, got a reasonably good reputation, and we have real capacity restraints. We don't have big militaries that can force people to do what we want them to do. We don't have huge economies that it would allow us to buy international policy outcomes, but we don't seek dominion over anyone. We don't carry a lot of historical baggage. We never had large empires. People tend to like us. Our image, our reputation, our national brands, if you will, tend to be fairly positive. You say you're from Canada or Australia. It tends to evoke a smile rather than a scowl. That's a positive predisposition. These are things you can work with, and that's how public diplomacy works. You get the people, you get the populations with whom you're dealing directly to want what you want, and you let them work on their governments. That works a lot better than going over to the foreign ministry, knocking on a door and making a demarche, that's a former diplomatic call, where you try and convince somebody else that looks like you to get their government to do what you want. Well, if you're the Canadian or the Australian ambassador and you've got some really pressing issue that you want to see the foreign minister of China about, or the foreign minister of India or the United States or Britain or France or Brazil, and some other much more important ambassador also wants to see that foreign minister, you're not going to be anywhere near the front of the line, especially if it's on the same issue. You're going to be somewhere near the back. So how do you get what you want? You get the people live in those countries to want what you want. We used to do a lot of public diplomacy in Canada. We're not, for various reasons, doing too much these days. 
But in the late 90s, in three years from 96 to 99, using this public diplomacy formula that's connecting directly with populations to get them to want what you want, we brought home for our then Foreign Minister Lloyd Axworthy. First of all, a treaty to ban land mines, then an international criminal court, then a couple of really big initiatives on children in conflict and child soldiers, then a big initiative on conflict diamonds that resulted in the Kimberley process, which got a lot of black market diamonds that were being sold to fund civil wars, and some even international conflicts in Africa, uh, taken off the market. Um, and then we got our good friend Gareth Evans uh, to head up a blue ribbon panel called the International Commission on State Sovereignty and Humanitarian Intervention, which brought home a great report uh, entitled The Responsibility to Protect, which finally in 2005 at the Millennium Summit was basically adopted by the international community as an acceptable doctrine of international behavior. Got all of those using public diplomacy and over enormous obstacles. Major powers were not big on any of those initiatives, but we managed to do them by working with the NGO community, using the media strategically, getting into joint venture partnerships with the like-minded. So public diplomacy really works. So that, if you think of diplomacy as being on a spectrum, traditional diplomacy, public diplomacy across the broad middle, and out on that far edge, this guerrilla diplomacy stuff. How's it different than public diplomacy? Well, I get this question a lot. You could think of it as extreme public diplomacy. Or as one of the guys that peer-reviewed my book, Bruce Gregory, said, public diplomacy on steroids. The big difference between guerrilla diplomacy and public diplomacy is that guerrilla diplomacy takes public diplomacy to places that it's never been before. To the storefront, to the burial, to the suit, to the favela, to the conflict zone. And it practices it in ways that rely much more upon the agility, adaptability, and acuity that I mentioned, but relentless innovation and outside-the-box thinking. The agility part for the guerrilla diplomat, if the acuity is the getting it, the rapid adaptive cognition, the knowledge, the deep knowledge of place, The, acuity. the agility is the flexibility, the adaptability, the capacity to roll with the punches. The ability to seep down into place like penetrating oil into a fabric. Maneuvering pathways inaccessible to others. Getting right down into those centers of power and influence that people in the bubble could never penetrate. If you've got diplomatic representatives that are capable of doing that, they become tremendous generators of granular intelligence. Granular intelligence is that intimate knowledge of place. Governments need that. Diplomats should be tremendous generators of it. They rarely are, mainly because the business model isn't tuned up to produce those kinds 
So that's the agility part. So you've got the acuity, the agility, then we hit the autonomy. The autonomy is in many ways going to be the hardest nut to crack. Why is that? Foreign ministries <coughs> tend to be modeled on what, if you ever read poetry, uh, something that T.S. Eliot might have called the J. Alfred Kubrock School of Public Administration. This is the do I dare to teach, do I wear my trousers role. Foreign ministries are very conservative, extremely risk averse, very control oriented. Rather than autonomy that they would give to their employees, empowerment, enablement, they prefer to control. And in the very fast moving high risk circumstances of globalization, I'm here to tell you that that just won't do anymore. Instead, <clears throat> you've got to give your diplomats this margin to maneuver required to get the job done. Now, this does not mean creating some rogue agents that are going to go out and do all sorts of spooky things and use deception and subterfuge and what have you. This is not my guerrilla diplomat. The guerrilla diplomat is operating above the radar screen all the time, has the flags flying. That's exactly why people want to talk to them. Not because they're some kind of spook or secret agent, but in fact because they are the representative of a government. But if people are going to talk to them, if they're going to get the job done, they've got to have that degree of autonomy. Now, ironically, that autonomy will feature many rather traditional diplomatic virtues. That's why you're going to give them the autonomy, because they have judgment, tact, discretion, knowledge. And this autonomy is going to work in two ways. It's going to work backwards and forwards. The backwards part is the confidence, trust, and respect that you have to have vis-a-vis -vis your relationship with your boss. If there's no confidence, trust, and respect there, you'll never have that autonomy. But that autonomy is going to be worthless to you unless you have the confidence, trust, and respect of the people that you're dealing with. So very important that that dimension, confidence, trust, and respect, is working in two directions. So that's the autonomy. Agility, acuity, autonomy. A couple of examples of growth most. Someone I think familiar to a lot of Australians, a rather controversial figure, Sergio Brazilian diplomat tragically killed uh, in the 2003 truck bombing of UN headquarters in Baghdad was a good example of a good diplomat. He got things done in extremely difficult environments like Timor or Cambodia by thinking outside the box, improvising, innovating or and in so doing, achieving things that a lot of people thought were impossible, such as elections, the delivery of emergency humanitarian assistance, getting
parties to stop shooting each other. Tremendous determination, commitment, devotion, courage. Alternative methods. Samantha Power has written a very good uh, biography of Sergio, if you want to read more about him. He is a good example of a girl who's left. Um, Rilla Wallenberg, go back a little further. Swedish diplomat, Budapest, World War II. Sweden was in a difficult and somewhat exposed position in World War II. They were neutral, technically, but they were trading a lot with the Germans. So they had economic interests that were engaged. I'm not sure <coughs> had Raoul Wallenberg gone back to Stockholm and said, um, excuse me, would it be all right, you know, because I'm looking around and seeing some bad things happening, can I start issuing Swedish travel documents to Jewish children so that they won't get sent off to the death camps? He didn't ask. He just started doing it. And in so doing, saved thousands. That was an example of what he was We had a couple of Canadians actually did very similar things. A guy named Mark Bolden during the Pinochet coup against Allende in 1973 in Santiago. The day of the coup found three Chilean cabinet ministers on his doorstep. I don't think he could have asked headquarters if it was okay to issue them emergency travel documents because the downtown was just off limits. Malia Palace was being bombed. Anyway, uh, he was the consular officer. He had some emergency travel documents in his diplomatic premises, and he just issued the three cabinet ministers with emergency travel documents and they got out of the country as Canadians. Um, that's risk they would otherwise have been killed. Uh, last example that I'll give you, um, and I'll try and give you a, a short version of it. Um, one of the things that I had to do when I was cultural affairs officer in Bangkok in the 80s was organize the visit of Les Grands Ballets Canadiens, a very talented ballet troupe from Montreal, um, who I didn't think I should be wasting my time on because frankly, at great expense and huge investment of embassy time to pull off something like that, you know, we had a chance of maybe making a minor impression with a few members of the Thai elite. But it was not really going to have a profound impact on Canada's image and reputation in Thailand that would be lasting. I, I, I honestly, I thought I could be spending my time much more usefully doing other things. But I was told to deliver it, so I did. Two performances in National Theatre, a couple of workshops at ballet schools where the sons and daughters of the very wealthy Thais went to learn a little ballet. Article in the Bangkok Post, I think two pieces in the nation, not read by non-English speakers. Um, all in all, it was kind of fun, but a lot of work and um, not a good use of our resources, I didn't think. Anyway, had a going away party for them, big dinner at my place. Soy 33, certain that all the glitter at I was there, that was ambassadors, important people. By about 11, they almost all left. And it was me, 18 ballerinas, uh, the artistic director, and the administrative director. And one of them said, so Daryl, do you have any music? And I asked, sure, lots of music. 
go have a look, put on whatever you want. So they rummaged around in the day to set. And uh, they found some, I think they found some Tears for Fears, a band that was popular in the 80s, or it might have been uh, David Bowie, who was doing a China Girl tour. Anyways, good, good music, dance music. Put this on, turned it up, and got them all in the mood. And all of a sudden, somebody said, we want to go dancing. I said, okay, there's a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of uh, discos in some of the big Western hotels. No, Daryl, that's not what we had in mind. We, we really want to go dancing. And I said, well, the other kind of dancing, and I'm not so sure you're going to really like it. It's uh, happening kind of in some seedy neighborhoods, and uh, it's not the greatest people around, and, you know, Daryl, that's okay. Uh, why don't we do that? So I thought to myself, <clears throat> I'm not going to phone up the ambassador and see if this is okay, but he's, and I could tell, you know, if I called him up and said, hey, uh, they want to go to Padcon, <laughs> uh, he would say, you've got to be kidding, and that's not going to happen. So I didn't call him. I had the embassy vans out there, so I had the, actually the capacity to get And I said, look, I just want to be absolutely sure, you know, this is, it's seedy, it's not nice. Um, it's okay, Daryl, let's go. So, Aquaman, get down to Pat Pong, you know, Pat Pong, and it's like the intergalactic bar in the first Star Wars. There's creatures from across the galaxy. There's, you know, all little Thai girls beckoning people into the various bars, fat Germans waddling down the street, everything. And we get about half in the night market happening with the fake Rolex watches, all pirated everything, handbags, Gucci, and anyway, get about halfway down. For some reason, they chose the King's Castle. They pour it in there. Big dance floor in the King's Castle, popular with journalists and uh, people from various Western militaries on leave, and tourists and backpackers, and everybody's in there. And the dancers are very good at been in there just a couple of minutes, and a couple of the ballerinas said, um, do you think it would be okay if we got on the catwalk? And I said, uh, well, um, I, should I ask, I'll go and I'll ask the manager. And so I went over, and he said, oh, listen, I mean, if they want to dance, that's fine. And I thought, you know, don't want to put anybody out of the job, but the dancers, the Thai dancers, and um, they were just, they thought this was the funniest thing and the greatest idea they'd ever heard. So, one ballerina, two ballerinas, five ballerinas, ten ballerinas, fifteen ballerinas up on the catwalk. It, it, it had a transformative effect on the place. And no one had ever seen dancing like this. I mean, it was really just the best. And so word spread like wildfire out the door uh, onto Pat Pong, Pat Pong 2, up and down Sealem Road, throngs, lineups, um, uh, and just everybody talking about it. And it was, it was quite, and it happened so fast. Anyway, after about 15 minutes, King's Castle, they wanted to go somewhere else, we left, and then somewhat the same thing happened. 
happened, I think, in three or four bars until closing time around 1.30. And by then, it was just the talk of the town. And everybody was talking about the Canadians and how the Canadian ballerinas took over Pat Pong. <laughs> this did more to transform Canada's image in Thailand in an hour and a half than the thousands of hours and millions of dollars that we spent bringing the ballet to the National Theater and a couple of workshops at ballet schools. Suddenly, the taxi drivers were talking about it, tuk-tuk drivers, everybody, all the journalists, all the correspondents knew about it. It turned Canada's image and reputation, if we even had one, from kind of unknown if there was anything that was you know, clunky and distant to cool. And, uh, and, and it was probably the most, and so guerrilla diplomacy, sometimes you don't plan it. Sometimes it just happens and you, just, you have to go with it and there is an element of risk management. And sometimes it you know, might have gone the other way, but in this case, um, it, it really it produced absolutely splendid results. Anyway, enough examples. Um, one more little story, then let's, let's talk. Uh, Charles Gordon, Gordon of Khartoum, one of Queen Victoria's favorite generals. The tribes were rising in what was then Upper Egypt, late 19th century. The empire was at risk. Queen Victoria decided to send one of her favorite generals, Charles China Gordon, in with a very light expeditionary to secure Khartoum until a much heavier formation, I think under Kitchener, uh, could be moved up the Nile uh, all the way from Cairo and secure the place of the British Empire in perpetuity. So Gordon gets in there, no problem with his expeditionary force, he, like Shahrazad, had a lot of my qualities as a diplomat. He was a great leader. He was inspirational. He communicated directly with his troops. He inspired them. But he was also a really good manager. He uh, didn't have much in surplus, but British Army uniforms were one of the things that he had. Stuffed them all full of straw. Put them up around the battlements, all around Khartoum, so that El Mahdi, the chosen one, and his desert tribesmen think that there were a lot more defenders than there were. He used his technological advantage brilliantly. He had Gatling guns, he had artillery, but he had two gunboats. He used the gunboats to get the women and children out of Khartoum before the siege was really tight. And while they were out there, <coughs> he brought in dried fish and grain so that he could withstand a long siege. So, time passes. He's working smarter, he's leading brilliantly, he's innovating and improvising and doing everything that he possibly can, but the siege is getting tighter and still the relief hasn't come. What's going on? Well, we're dithering in London, competing priorities elsewhere in the empire, Gladstone's got political problems, 
they decided, there's maybe a connection to this, that they needed some raftsmen to put together the rafts that were going to bring the artillery up the Nile. So they sent a recruiting party to Quebec to hire a bunch of lumberjacks who knew how to build these rafts, because that's how they got the wood down these wild rivers in Quebec, moved these guys from Quebec to London, to Alexandria, to Cairo. Took a long time for the reinforcements to arrive. In fact, two days before the reinforcements arrived, the defense imploded, and poor, dashing China Gordon ended up with his head being paraded around Khartoum on the end of the pole. I tell you this story because I want to say this. At the end of the day, there is a dialectical relationship between results and resources. You don't get results without the resources. Diplomacy in Canada, in most places, from everything I've read, Australia qualifies. It's not far off where Gordon was just a couple of days before his defenses imploded. And it doesn't matter how much of this guerrilla diplomacy we bring to bear, how well we can reform the foreign ministry, how smart we work, how ready we are to retool the business model. If this reinvestment doesn't happen, then these sorts of radically improved results that I believe diplomacy can bring to the world of international relations will not be forthcoming. <coughs> So reinvestment is urgently required in my view. So we can get from where we are to where we need to be. I think we've got a roadmap. I think the guerrilla diplomacy book provides the new narrative for this rehabilitation of diplomacy, or at least helps with that. But reinvestment is going to be required. Ladies and gentlemen, those of you who don't know me, I'm reviewing the President of Queensland that's my great pleasure. Thank you very much, Daryl, for that uh, stimulating address. Uh, all strength to your arm with your advocacy of uh, guerrilla diplomacy. I, I suspect we're still a little way away from uh, the, uh, perhaps, not, perhaps a little way away from the reality, but perhaps not the perceptions of reality of the uh, of those uh, dithering, uh, dithering dandering lost in the haze between protocol and, help and alcohol, but I'm sure uh, your book and the advocacy which you've brought to us uh, today uh, is certainly going to, to help uh, help the mission. I think the, uh, your wonderful example of the uh, Canadian ballerinas uh, displaying obviously agility uh, and acuity um, and autonomy even I suppose in platform is, uh, is something which is going to uh, enable us all to recall the, uh, the sorts of things which we hope to see in the future. Um, my thanks also to Griffith Asia Institute uh, for putting this uh, function on jointly with, um, with the AWIA. Thank you all to join with uh, me now and thank me on behalf of us all, uh, Daryl, for this uh, wonderful talk. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.